You're listening to a Big MX Radio Podcast. Brought to you by Arma Energy. Presented by Fly Racing, W Wheels, Bill's Pipes, Just One Helmets, X-Brand Goggles, Shades of Grey Custom Helmet Painting, Rhino Power Sports Supplements, Roy Borton Suspension, Watts Perfections, and Golden Tire. Simply the best, motocross and supercross news from around the globe. And now, here's your host, Brad Gephardt. Welcome to the Arma Energy Drink Big MX Radio Podcast Show, brought to you by Moto Ice Wrap, Fly Racing, X-Brand Goggles, Just One Helmets, Bill's Pipes, and W Wheels. I am your host, Brad Gebhardt. With us on the line, we've got Healy Barber himself, Mike Healy. How's it going there, Mike? Hey, how's it going, man? What's going on? Hey, not too bad. It's uh, it's cold and blustery up here in Canada, but I, have, I hear that you've got some cold and miserable conditions down there in SoCal. Yeah, we got our rain coming in today, you know. Like I said earlier, we, we had 90 degrees all week long, and then all of a sudden we get, you know, rain and wind and cold, you know, as we get close to the weekend. I don't know what's going on here. No joke. Uh, I threw you guys for a loop. It's, uh, it is still winter for you guys, but uh, uh, you guys are used to uh, sunny and 75. So uh, when, when weather like this does uh, turn up, um, how, does, uh, how does SoCal react? Oh, I I like it. It you know we get a little bit of rain. It kind of washes all the dirt away. So you know, and and being a motocrosser, that lets us get out in the hills and actually get away from the tracks a little bit, and you know, go a little trail riding and have a little fun and stuff. But uh, now that I'm a barber, it's actually it kind of hinders it a little bit. You know, not a lot of people want to come in inside and get their hair cut, and you know, everybody either goes to work and then goes straight home. So now I'm cutting hair. It kind of kind of hinders it a little bit. No doubt, and uh, for those for those who don't know, this uh, this motocross hero of sorts that's on the other line is uh, is now uh, basically uh, dedicated himself to uh, the the occupation of uh, being a barber. And uh, if you want to go follow him on uh, on social media on his Instagram, Healy Barber ninety nine, um, you'll check out a bunch of really cool. Um, haircuts that you've done a lot of styles and uh like i i think it's really cool man um <laughs> it's it's a it's a new uh new thing for you obviously but uh you're you you've you've gone at it with both barrels which is no surprise based on how you approached your entire motocross career well I, a lot of people have kind of laughed at me becoming a barber because i mean i've always had some wild and crazy hairdos through my whole career of racing you know i've had every different color you can imagine i've had probably every style of hair from long to short to bald to mohawks to, you know, you pretty much name it. I've done it with my hair. So, you know, it kind of, kind of fits it now that, you know, I become a barber and, and I can, you know, do it to other people's hair. No doubt. And, uh, you're, you're obviously, uh, you've got a lot of tricks in your bag as far as, uh, the styles and the fades and the, the different cuts that you can, uh, provide. What's your favorite part about, uh, about, um, basically your, your artistry, uh, that is, uh, creating a really cool look for all of your clients? Well, I don't know if it's so much of creating a look or it's more of getting a person into my chair and just getting to meet a new person, you know, and yeah. hearing their stories. You know, that, that's probably one of the biggest things that I've had with my fans throughout the years is that I've always listened to them. I've always been there for them. And 
and never thought that I was any better than them. So that's why I think they've stuck along, you know, stuck around with me for so long. And that's kind of the coolest thing about my new profession is that I get to meet a new person almost every time someone sits in my chair and, and I get to hear their story, you know, and then if they want, they get to hear a little bit of mine and, you know, I make new friends every day. That's the coolest thing. That is way too cool, man. Like, uh, I, I often think of a, of a, of a, of a barber as a full-time barber, full-time therapist, because, uh, all too often, um, like I, I, I'm not personally one to seek out, uh, like, a uh, uh, a therapist to, to talk out my problems, but, uh, for whatever reason, once it's time to sit in the barber's chair, uh, it's, it, it's hard not to, to vent a little bit and, uh, kind of unload some of uh, life's problems on someone that's, um, more busy, uh, with your hair than anything else. But, uh, you, you say you also enjoy the, uh, the listening side of thing. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the cool part of it is, you know, it's time to sit there and listen. It, you know, I, I, I get to do my magic and, and help these, you know, these guys look better and, and feel better about themselves. And they kind of get their chance to get a little bit off their chest, you know, and, uh, you know, that's the cool part. I, I like listening. I, I like to help out, you know, even when I was teaching the schools, the motocross schools, that was a big thing that my students always thanked me for was that I was there for them a lot more than just being a motocross coach. You know, I was kind of a second father to a lot of these writers out there and, you know, helped them get through some hard times, you know, that they couldn't talk to the parents, you know, about. So I, I enjoy that, that counseling part of my new profession. That's cool, man. And uh, it's a great outlet for you. And I'm glad to see that uh, you've, you've picked something up because uh, uh, all too often life after motocross um, is, is a bit of a... Uh, um, a daunting thing for a lot of professional guys. You know what I mean? Like all you guys do is motocross, and as soon as uh, the the flash bobs start pop it, stop popping, and uh, the the crowds have gone away, there's got to be something else to fill the rest of your days. And uh, you found a very worthy occupation to do so. Yeah, it, it's it's tough. Like you said, once once it stops with all the limelight and everything and all the glamour, you know, of the sport. You know, I've I've done it since I was three years old. I really didn't know anything else. And, uh, what kind of, you know, brought me this way other than, you know, like messing with my own hair was that, you know, my, my daughter graduated from cosmetology school and basically, you know, kind of put it out there that maybe we could work together in the future. And, uh, if, cool. if, if she, if she can do it, I can do it. And just the fact that she wanted to work with her old man, you know, that's, that was the biggest thing in the world. Wow, that's that, that. That is really cool. I can connect with that because, uh, as I said in the previous podcast that I worked with with uh, Jesky MX Customs, um, I work for Gebhart Masonry Limited, and uh, my last name's on the end of that uh, or at the beginning of that that company, but it's not my company. I work for my dad. My dad taught, uh, showed me, uh, introduced me to bricklaying at the tender age of 13 years old because I was strong enough to start carrying bricks full time. Um, but uh, I think that's really cool that uh, you and your daughter will be able to, to work uh, like, uh, side by side. And um, I'm going to tell you right now, there's some great things about it. There's some not so great things about it. But as the time goes on, there's way more great things about working with family than there are bad things that work with family. And uh, honestly, I wouldn't change the relationship I have with my dad for anything um, because um, 
it's it's an unspoken thing. The two of us, we know what we need when we need it. Uh, we can vent about my mom, which is awesome, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a really cool bond, and I'm glad you're going to be able to share that with uh, with your daughter at some point. Yeah, like that, I'd be lying to myself <laughs> if I was going to say it's going to be a fantasy world. You know, I know no my kidding. kid, and she knows her old man, and you know, basically, it, it's you know, we know when we rub each other wrong, we know when to get out of each other's way, and that's part of being family. But the cool thing is, is that we do get up every morning and and look forward to being able to go to work with each other. And that's what we both have been talking about, you know, that hopefully sometime here in the future that we're going to be able to do. That's right. On. I honestly wish you all the best with the the barber side of things, uh, man. I think uh, you get better and better <clears throat> with what you do. I've been following your uh your your social media for a long period of time, checking out the different hairstyles, and uh, you you get better every single time. Like uh, almost, it seems like there's like a a notable or a, a noticeable difference every single time uh that you're you're posting these uh these photos uh really cool uh for anyone who's looking to f- uh, follow you like i said earlier it's uh healy barber 99 uh on instagram and uh give that a follow and uh you're a a, a paul a paul mitchell student and uh it seems like you're you're a, a one of the star pupils yeah I'm, I'm you know proud to say that i am a, a paul mitchell graduate you know that's definitely no easy school. That you know, it was fifteen hundred hours, which took me a whole year to get through. And uh, you know, without the backing of my mom and my daughter, and you know, some friends on the side, you know, I, I touched bases with an old race friend that you know back in the amateur days, you know, Ward Bassett, who actually is in the hair business now. You know, if it wasn't for him, he, you know, he hooked me up with you know some really good scissors and you know some some little extra things here and there to make it a lot easier for me, you know, and that kept me motivated, you know, things like that. So, you know, if it wasn't for the loved ones and the friends and stuff to support me, you know, 1500 hours is a long time to stay, you know, stay positive. But, uh, yeah, actually, I actually miss getting up every morning and going to school. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting this together and getting in the shop and, and doing this every day. No doubt, and uh, really cool to see you uh, developing your talent and uh, like uh, hungry, hungry for for knowledge and wanting to now put 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 your uh, your your tools to use. I don't uh, think it'd be. Um I think I think it would be really cool to to start having some some, some current pros uh, being uh, a client of yours to uh, bring your look back to the races, and uh, I, th- I think that'd be pretty cool. Actually, I, I I would love to do that. I would love to be the, the barber for the motocross stars you know but that's up to them you know everybody has their kind of their their little go-to people and stuff like that but uh anytime any of these guys want a haircut or, or want to give me a shot at seeing if i can create something for them you know i'm, I'm here I'm, I'm willing for every chance that i can get to, to do something no doubt, we got What we got to do is we got to get a, uh, a stylish kid like uh, Cole Seeley into your chair because that kid's always got a fresh new look coming uh, down the pipe, and then uh, make that connection with Troy Lee to paint you up a set of uh, the handles on your scissors because uh, th- th- that'd just be way too cool. Yeah, I would. I I would have no problem cutting Cole's hair. You know, he, he's definitely tearing it up this year. You know, and I'd have no problem sitting him in the chair and taking care of the, the kid. No worries. That's awesome, man. Well, I hope we're able to make that connection. So, uh, most 
most people, when they think of Mike Healy, they think of uh, a guy who won his very first uh, Supercross on a 125, the very first year that there was a 125 class for uh, for Supercross, and they think of uh, a guy who's tearing it up on Suzuki's. Some people think about a, a guy who was able to make podiums on a Kajiva. Many would not think of uh, uh, a guy who uh, rode Hondas at Indian Dunes in 1974 with uh, with an open-faced helmet, throttle wide open, shifting up on a number 26 machine. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I've ridden a lot of bikes, and I've been riding for a lot of years. So, you know, like you said, if all they have to do is go to my Instagram page, and which is, you know, my portfolio, but it's also yeah. kind of goes back into history of, of my motocross career too. So, you know, I got a lot of the old pictures in there and, you know, and I'm, as long as I keep coming across them, I'm going to keep putting them in there because, you know, a lot of people seem to like them. So, you know, I've, I've been on a bike for a lot of years. Well, you were part of the, uh, the, the, basically the, the motocross, uh, evolution. You were at the ground floor at the grassroots level. We're talking, uh, before there really what, before the era was the Elsinore, uh, Mike Healy was ripping up Barona Oaks and, um, Indian Dunes, all these, uh, Carlsbad, all these tracks that uh, are absolutely iconic in, in American motocross. You were there, you were tearing it up with, uh, uh an absolute, uh, like legends list of, of, uh, of what would become, uh, yesterday or the, the the next year's um motocross superstars uh what was it like literally being right in the thick of things in the mecca of what would become uh like basically the the center of it all as far as uh north american motocross is oh it was you know it was really exciting i i grew up in an era where you know with the world and stuff and we actually you know growing up at the original saddle back in the state country and and Carl's dad and all that stuff before it all got torn down. And, you know, it was just a whole different way of, of racing compared to what it is nowadays. You know, back in the day, you know, Robin was racing, you know, nowadays, yeah. you, if you get into a fight, you get fined $5,000. Back in the day, if you didn't get into a fight, you weren't winning. You know, it, yeah, was, just totally. a different kind of, it was a different sport. And it definitely made, you know, different kinds of men out of you. So you either manned up and, and you became a winner or, or you just kind of, you know, rode around and, and picked up trophies. So, you know, it, it's definitely a different sport today. That's for sure. I think that's uh, pretty consistent with uh, with a lot of uh, North American sports and sports in general in in the world. You think of uh, some of the things that guys got away with in the football field back in the seventies would be uh, you'd be immediately ejected. Uh, nowadays, same thing with hockey. At, at, when you were ripping up uh, um, Indian Dunes, uh, about twenty years later was the, uh, the the last guy to not wear a hockey helmet out there on the ice. And uh, so a lot of things have changed in a lot of different sports. Motor cross is no exception but um you must have seen uh the sport really evolve quickly like from from down pipes to now up to up pipes full suspension like uh, bikes that have more suspension uh than even though they do now at some point during the 80s there was bikes with 13 uh, 12 and 13 inches of travel and then we had to dial it back a little bit um it, it was a it's basically this uh this infant that was the uh the uh, north american motocross and uh you're right there on the ground floor my friend 
Yeah, I, I've seen it go from where your suspension was actually the air in your tires and the foam in your seat, you know, yeah. to like you said, to shocks that were so long and forks that were so long that they actually had to, you know, go back and lower the bikes down because then they were just top heavy, you know, and, uh, and also going through the era when we could actually ride works bikes, you know, everybody that was a factory rider had their personal one on, you know, one off bikes, you know, custom built for yourself where nowadays they have the production rules here and you can't ride a works bike unless you go over to Europe and, you know, the fans don't yeah. get to see what a real works bike is like anymore. I mean, hand built custom bikes, you know, one hundred fifty, two hundred thousand dollars, you know, race bike. Work of art. I mean, just amazing bikes, just custom built for just you. So you know, and it was neat just growing up because I remember when I was young and they would have you know the eighty class the intermission race before the one twenty five ever got to it, and you go through the pits and seeing the you know, the, the factory bikes and stuff and just how cool they were, you know, the factory Hondas and, I mean, back then there was, you know, the Huskies and all that stuff too, but, um, you know, there was some really cool works bikes, you know, and then actually being able to be, you know, 85 and 86 was the last year that they allowed the works bike, you know, and that was actually when I was riding factory Suzuki and being able to be on a team that still built them. That was, you know, really cool. No kidding. Not to mention the fact that uh, you're one of the, you're literally one of the only to swing a leg over uh, a, the the RM50 with. Uh, do you recall what the uh, the stamp on the frame read as far as uh, what model that was? Oh, it was it was uh, was RMX zero 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 one. It was the very first RM50 brought into the United States. You know, it, it was the first one out of the crate off the boat, you know, and, and it was a pre-production prototype. And I actually got a hold of it and got to ride it for almost a whole season before they were even released over here. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was crazy. You know, I was lucky enough to, to get my foot in the door with uh, R&D, you know, racing back in the day, which was Suzuki's amateur program. You know, they kind of highlighted it all. And get my foot in the door with them, you know, landed me a long career with Suzuki, you know, and, and I was, had a very successful career you know, as an amateur because of the R&D team. You know, they, they built me some really good bikes and I was, you know, lucky enough to have a, a, a good time there with, with the factory Suzuki guys. No doubt. You were on the, uh, basically the, um, uh, the, Highest echelon of of, uh, of amateur team, the R and D team for Suzuki was uh, absolutely incredible. Uh, like basically, your bikes weren't too far off the first full works bikes that you would eventually graduate to uh, in in the pro class, and uh, these things were were totally cool. Uh, and uh, you stayed on one twenty fives a lot longer than most people would. Actually, no, I was off pretty well. I went over to Europe, but I mean, I got on a one twenty five when I was still. I think I started getting on them at, at 14 and right after like Ponca city, I did Ponca when I was 15, the last year that I rode it. And right after that was, that was my last ride on an 80. And, you know, I got on my 125, but my first big pro race was Anaheim, you know, the first race of the year. And I got to win that. And then, uh, 
basically the next year when they bought me in Supercross the 250s. So, I mean, I rode the 125 outdoors, but I I basically went 250s at 17 years old. You know, yeah, I was that, that... I was <laughs> barely over five foot tall, you know, and like 105 pounds and trying to ride a 250. You know, it wasn't much fun. So you roll into like you incredibly uh, successful amateur career, and I want to I want to stick on that just for a, a short little bit because you had a ton of rivals in and around California that you must have been banging bars with right up until your uh, uh, your pro debut. Um, do you do you recall any of the uh, um, obviously you should, you'd enjoyed a lot of success? Some of the rivals you had, some of the guys that uh, raced closely oh. with you, and uh, who some of the your riding friends were because uh, nobody gets through this sport with without uh, uh, a crop of guys that uh, spin laps with you? Well, I mean, back then, you know, the, the 80 expert class was so stacked that, I mean, there was 20 guys on the line that could win any day. You know, it was completely different than today. You know, I mean, we had Larry Brooks, you know, Bruce Bunch, Rick Hemme, Kyle Fleming, you know, um, gosh, Bobby Moore was one of the big names, Eddie Hicks. You know, Willie Surratt, you know, Bader Monet. You know, there was a lot of names that could do it at any given time. You know, and, you know, I was, I was lucky. I lived so close to Saddleback that I was there seven days a week. Yeah. So I was one of the lucky guys that could ride seven days a week. And we had our own little group out there at Saddleback. You know, there was, there was me, Bruce Bunch, Chris Taylor. Taylor, myself. I mean, there was a whole group of us, you know, Jim Cobham. There was a whole group of us that were kind of the saddleback kids, you know, that we were there every day. And then we were at the local night track that we rode at OCIR every Thursday night. And, you know, it's just when it came to saddleback, we were, we were the ones that, you know, you better watch out for. So, uh, as far as like you were, you're on the, the R and D team uh, around. I, I imagine uh, Buddy Antonez would have been on the on the team at the same time, but he's a couple of years younger than you. Do you remember seeing Buddy on on an eighty? Because it's like for, I've never been able to to see that for like, especially not in person and not even on video. Uh, most people say Buddy was better on an 80 than anybody better than Ricky better than James better than uh Alessi and even even better better than yourself like would you confirm well, that or like yeah, do you think that uh, I I I got to watch him ride you know because he was just the, the generation right behind me Yeah but uh I hate to say it he still doesn't beat my amateur record I still held the number one plate in the amateur class for what 6 years straight so even Alessi, and even Alessi hasn't beaten my amateur record. So, <laughs> well, that just sells, I mean, sells it right there. Uh, moment, the number one that's on your bike when a... you're racing in the R and D class, or you're racing for R and D back in uh, 80, 84 at Ponca, is uh, is all that needs to be said, I guess. <laughs> he was fat, but he definitely had his days, you know, and you know, but. It's hard to say, you know, exactly who did he have to race against. Like I said, there was there's 20 guys on the gate when I when I raced that would have yeah. broken your leg to beat you, you know. And I don't know if if there was that many people still in the class when he was racing. I don't know. You know, I had my own problems in the pro class, but um, I definitely you know knew he was one of the fast 80 riders, and he was definitely up and coming. That's for sure. 
No doubt. And you had some sweet bikes back then, man. I'm talking blue frames, black engines, uh, always on point. You were on the Cinesalo gear, Oakley goggles, Bell. I use a Bell helmets as well. And just like you, you, your look in 84 before you turned pro, um, I, you could show up looking like that today at a Supercross and turn heads. That's, yeah, that's funny because um, there's three three of us that were riding for Factory Cinesalo. You know, there was yeah. there was Ricky Johnson, Jeff Ward, and me. And, <laughs> you know, and it was crazy because, like, I got really lucky that I got the first pair of white boots brought into the United States, you know, from Cinesalo. And they were supposed to be for Ricky, and they were too small, so they gave them to Jeff. And they were still too small for him, so they gave them to me. So, you know, I, <laughs> I looked out on a lot of things and, Love it. and, you know, being able to look up to those guys that, you know, throughout my career, and, you know, it's how I got to kind of base my style and my writing and everything. Cause all those guys were from SoCal. So, you know, I, I been bars with them every day on the, at the track, whether they're, you know, twice as fast as me, but I was still out there trying to, you know, bang with them. So, you know, it's, you just learn every day from them. So being a uh, an amateur phenom and like in 84, uh, riding 125s and 80s, there must have been a few opportunities for you to show up to a local track and uh, and maybe even uh, um, hang on a few corners or even pass a few of the guys that were currently racing in the pro ranks. Well, I mean, uh, we've been out, we were out testing for Honda. I remember uh, it was a day after the, the national saddleback. And Bob Hanna was just getting onto his Honda, and he passed me going up parallel, you know, next to the starting line before yep. the, the bonsai drop-off. And I freaked out not knowing who he was when he passed me and passed him back going down the bonsai drop-off and holding him off for, like, a whole lap around this track. You know, when I was on my 80, and he was doing his testing on his, you know, his factory 250s. And got off the track, and he came over to me and just told me I was nuts. You know, and I just, I just laughed. My chin hit the ground when I realized it was Hannah and, you know, things like that. So, but, uh, yeah, I've I've got to race in, in being bars with a lot of fast guys, and that's what makes you faster. If you get out there and push yourself to their limits, it's only going to make you faster. You've got to ride with fast guys. That is absolutely uh, like one of the keys to success for any rider that wants to get themselves to the next level is uh, push yourself, put, push your your uh, comfort level, and ride with those faster guys. Because uh, if you're the fastest guy uh, in your riding group, you're 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 the one teaching everyone else how to go fast. They're not teaching you much, right? Isn't that right? Exactly, and then you just kind of get stagnant, you know, because you're setting the pace, and everyone's going to eventually catch up to you. You know, you always have to have someone out there in front of you. So, um, 1984 uh, ends. You say goodbye to the guys over at R and D, and I say hello to Pat Alexander and the rest of the guys over at Suzuki. And uh, that is no shortage of a uh, a star studded bunch. We got George Holland, uh, the Burner, Scott Burnworth, uh, AJ Whiting, uh, Russ Wageman, Eric Kehoe, yourself, and Bobby Moore. Um, you guys were like locked, loaded, and ready to race. Come gate drop at uh, at Anaheim. Yeah, I mean, we definitely had a solid team, and the, and the cool thing was is that we all knew each other for quite a few years. It wasn't like that the team came together and it was like, you know, who are you? 
you know, everybody on that team had been around, you know, pretty much around the R and D team, except for, for Bobby Moore, who, who just came in, but he was, you know, basically before a teammate, he was a rival for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, Burnsworth and, and Holland and Kehoe and, and all those guys, you know, and AJ White, and all those guys have all been R and D writers. So for me to step in there and be able to go train with those guys and, and go testing with them, you know, wasn't anything new for me. You know, I'd already been around them for years and, you know, was comfortable with them and stuff. And so, I mean, it was kind of almost like a, a reunion, getting us all back together kind of thing. So, you know, we, we were a pretty comfortable team. No kidding. And speaking of reunions, um, I, I know uh, uh, Scott Burnworth put a, uh, a reunion of sorts together just this last weekend at Carl at uh, the Carlsbad reunion. Uh, were you able to attend and uh, and and reconnect with uh, your old teammate? No, I wasn't. Uh, okay. I, you know, we, we went down to San Diego for the Supercross and drove back, and it was just too far to go back and forth and back and forth kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's not that far, but it is it's a good hour and a half from my house. And, you know, it's just, you know, it, it's tough when, when right now I'm not working or anything and gas and all that's expensive. So, you know, I, I wanted to be there and, and I, you know, I, I love Scotty to death and we were actually talking about it just beforehand. And, you know, I just, it's just something I, I couldn't swing. It's all good. I like that. I, I would have, uh, I would hope that you've been able to make it there, but uh, hopefully, uh, I'm hoping that there's a fifth uh, reunion uh, next year, and I'll be able to be in attendance, and uh, and hopefully you'll be able to be there with me. Yeah, I hope so because I, you know, I definitely have, I've won my share of fair races at Carlsbad. That's for sure. You know, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a Carlsbad or a local down in that area, but I yeah. definitely love Carlsbad, and I've been there for a lot of years, and. You know, I, I think the only race that I didn't get to do there was uh, like one of the Super Motara races. You know, back when they uh, when Chandler won it and stuff like that. You know, that's probably one of the only races that I haven't done a call that. Wow, like um, it's it's a super historic area, and um, to 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 throw your knobbies down on that soil is uh, is almost a rite of passage as far as racers that were able to uh, to to race it back when it was in its heyday. Uh, what were some of the the intricacies of of getting the uh, the power down on uh, on a notoriously slick terrain like Carlsbad? Well, I mean, Carlsbad was just like Saddleback; it, it dropped so hard, back was blue grooved, and Basically, it's just keeping your momentum. You, you, if you grow up on that kind of dirt, you really learn throttle control. You really learn, you know, where to keep your weight on the bike so that way you don't push. And, um, you know, it's momentum. As long as you keep your momentum going and, and with throttle control, you know, that's how you keep your speed built up. You know, you, you can't stop on the track that's that hard back because you're just going to smoke the tires trying to get going again. Hey, this is Jake Weimer with Team Tedder Racing, and you're listening to Big MX Radio. We're going to commercial break. We'll be right back. If there's one item to be picky about, it's choosing the right helmet. I'm Andrew Short, and I choose the F2 Carbon from Fly Racing. You, too, can wear the exact same helmet I wear, Trey Kennard wears, Jimmy Albertson wears, and many others. The F2 Carbon is a helmet loaded with details that make a huge difference in comfort and safety. Lightweight materials, phenomenal airflow, and a super comfortable, sweat-absorbing liner 
and generous iPort design to accommodate any goggle choice or just a few. And did I mention how super trick these helmets look? Straight off the shelf and onto the racetrack. If you are looking for one amazing helmet, look no further than the F2 Carbon from Fly Racing. For more information about Fly Helmets and other products from Fly Racing, visit them on the web at flyracing.com. What's wrong, Jeff? I don't know, Jay. Well, you better fuel up with a nutritious breakfast with Oats and Bran. Oats and Bran? I didn't think there was such a thing. That's what I used to think. Now, I start out every morning with a bowl of Amigos. For extreme kids like us. That's what I call fueling for the big ride. Hey kids, start out every morning with a fat bowl. When it comes to helmets, there is just one. The helmet brand, that is. Just One Helmets is tailor-made for motocross and street bike riding, and now available in North America. Who chooses Just One? Well, for starters, Tim Geiser, winner of the Italian round in MX2, David Philipparts, Vicky Golden, Trevor Reese, as well as David Pulley. And you know what? So do I. I choose Just One Helmets because they are simply the safest, lightest, and most comfortable lid available. Want to know more about Just One Helmets? Check them out on the web at www.justonehelmets.com. Find out about the J12 the J32, and all of the colorways that are absolutely blow your socks off. So guys, please head over to www.justonehelmets.com today. Go check them out. You won't be disappointed. The 2014 X-Brand Goggles is back and better than ever. From the Scatter-X, Volcano, and Phantom Goggle, X-Brand has the product to make you stand out on race day. The quality of X-Brand products is second to none. Great lenses, incredible frame, and a strap that doesn't wear out. Great tear-offs, zip-off systems, nose guard, and more. Check out eksbrand.com for all of the accessories and pricing. WUSA is your one-stop shop for quality wheel sets in America. All of the best components built for the toughest conditions. Hit up WUSA.com, that's D-U-B-Y-A-U-S-A.com right now and check out the custom wheel builder selection. Pick your rims, pick your hubs, pick your spokes, even pick your nipples and see what it's going to look like on your bike. On the website, you'll drool over components like XL and DID rims, Talon and Kite aluminum hubs, Galfer and Brembo brakes, and spokes that take a licking and keep on ticking. The same wheels that you buy are built by the same guys who are building wheels for Ryan Dungey, Jeremy Martin, Chad Reed, and the entire Geico Honda team. And I kid you not, 
They are not told whose wheels are whose. They just build amazing product. And I want you guys in a set of W wheels. So do what I did and head to WBYAUSA.com today. WUSA. All things wheels. What's up guys? It's time to talk a little bit about Roy Borden Race. He's the performance specialist. Suspension, making a motor work, balancing a bike, or just maintenance. He's got the tools and know-how to make sure that your bike is ready on race day or practice. Roy Borden has strength in years of experience and the best technology and best tools at his disposal. Whether you're getting your forks redone, seals, or a full, full-blown rebuild on your forks or, or shock. Call up Roy Borton today at 204-633-2722. Bill's Pipes, the home of legendary performance. Since 1974, Bill's Pipes has been providing motocross and off-road riders the performance they need. Two-stroke or four-stroke, Bill's Pipes has the exhaust system for you. In recent years, we've seen a resurgence of the Bill's Pipes brand, and that's great news. And that's great news for motocross racers everywhere. For four-strokes, Bill's Pipes brings the RE13 to dominate the fight on any brand. For you two-stroke guys, the MX2 Bill's Pipes exhaust system is the right one for the job and comes in works, nickel, and the all-new cone look finish that'll turn heads all day long. Head to BillsPipes.com right now and get the same pipe used by Billy Lininovich, Vicky Golden, the JMR Suzuki team, Jesse Pierce, Nico Izzy, and David Cole. Bill's Pipes is craftsmanship at its finest. So go with Bill's Pipes and never settle. So let's talk about eighty four here or eighty eighty five here. You, we're we're churning pro. We've got some some uh, veterans around me like uh, Holland and and uh, and Burnworth, uh, Whiting, um, and uh, and you're in there with Bobby Moore, your teammates on one twenty five on the West Coast together, uh, which I got to imagine for you. Um, is uh is is a good thing and a bad thing you're you're like you've got a teammate that you're a fierce competitor with you want to beat this guy but at the same time you know he's got good product because you're on the exact same thing and uh and like they always say when you have two guys you always lose because uh they can't both win uh must have been uh pretty um uh interesting uh being being in the pits at that time well i mean it was it was all right me and bobby got along because we had been bars for so many years on the minis, you know, that we got along. And actually, like, when we'd go testing and stuff, you know, I'd either go by and pick him up at his house or he'd come by and pick me up at my house. And we were buddies like that. We didn't let too much stuff get under our skin. You know, and plus, I mean, I was only 16 years old, so it took a lot, you know, to get under my skin. I was still new to the, the pro ranks, and I was having a blast every time we went to a different race and stuff it was a different city a different state and so it was was an adventure but um you know i had shoot i think i had the points lead all the way up until the last round until pasadena and uh i had actually 
broke my femur. I broke my femur off in the rib joint and sat out. I actually missed that, that round and handed it to Bobby. So, yeah. you know, that's kind of what happened. Yeah, you started so out the I, series. I can't blame, um, I can't, yeah, I can't blame anybody else but myself for it. Couldn't agree more. And uh, but the, yeah, for these guys, um, like you went out there and uh, a a one one two to start off the season, um, incredible. I don't like that was the first time that one twenty five Supercross even existed, and uh, you came out and put it to the boys. Yeah, I mean, I I was ready. I was ready to go, and then you know, kind of settled in a little bit and tried to become steady Eddie, and you know, just a little didn't hurt. You know, that's kind of how it, I lost it. I just got hurt, you know. And the, the crash that I had that where I, I broke my hip was just a fluke accident. I was, you know, just out trail riding, and I was on a fire road, and, and just kind of got a two-wheel drift and hit a little embankment and ice-sided off a cliff onto a big old boulder and broke my hip. You know, it was just something dumb. But, you know, it happens. And and like you said earlier in the podcast, um, that was the last time that you would uh, go onto a uh, an AMA Supercross track on a 125cc bike. The um, 1986 uh, after a full recovery, uh, coming back on a 252 stroke. Uh, and um, these are uh, at this point, I'm, I'm sure Suzuki is full production bikes, correct? Yeah, yeah, we we had our, everything was together and stuff. Our, the motors in the 250s were good. We just had trouble that year with that full floater suspension. You know, the, the back end on those 250s squatted really bad. You know, a lot of us got hurt riding those things in Supercross just because the back ends would just squat on the face of the jumps. Yeah, because if, if, if that's going to be the case, then uh usually throws you into an endo for those who uh, don't know that experience. Yeah, exactly. And that was, I, I broke my wrist, you know, really bad in Houston. You know, in Texas, you got Supercross there, and, you know, they had to go into surgery and all that, and, you know, just that thing kicked up on me. The rear end came up and dropped the front end and came up short, and, yeah, it wasn't wasn't pretty. You know, you know a lot of guys got hurt that year on those, those Suzuki 250s just because of that rear end. So for the for the outdoors, you went back to the 125, which uh, was something that was very common back then. Is that even guys that would uh, make the jump for uh, one or even two years, they would still go back down to 125s for uh, for their outdoor uh, outdoor effort, and uh, which I think is a is a um, a good thing. I think these young kids that uh, the 450 is a lot to to handle outdoors. Um, I think it would benefit a few guys as far as their results ways wise go back down to the 250s. But apparently, I guess that's not an option. Uh, once you've uh, gone 250 Supercross uh, or 450 Supercross, rather, but uh, how were the Suzuki's in uh, in '86 uh, outdoors? Well, the 125s were fast. I mean, Suzuki at that time was making really good motors in, in their 125s. You know, I know uh, '84, '85. My my Suzuki 125 was really really fast. '86 it was really fast. Um, I had a, a couple little problems there with Suzuki and, and they had a couple changes with uh, mechanics with Bob Hannikin in that year and and Bob, you know, is kind of a little prima donna and he wants certain things done and certain people and this and that and, and I ended up losing my mechanic because, you know, Bob wanted him. So and, and Bob being Bob Hanna, you know, he had a lot more pull than just me being me, you know, at seventeen years old. So um, you know, 
I had to adjust, you know, about three, four races in, into the season, you know, to a new mechanic and have to, you know, completely change things around because everything, you know, is different. You're not, you know, you got to learn how to work with a new person. So, well, the relationship between a, a mechanic and a, a rider is a pretty special thing, especially back in the uh, the box van days. I, I'm sure you were flying to all, all of the majority of the races back then, but uh, it, it was a, a probably a, a more um, tight uh, tight relationship then than it is now. Obviously, now you have a, a suspension guy, a motor guy, a chassis guy, this, that, and everything. Uh, then back then, uh, you're you, he was your guy. He, he did all your work for you, and uh, he, he had to know how to motivate you. Had to know how to calm you down. I didn't. I didn't know exactly how you wanted the bike in all conditions, and uh, um, it, that'd be oh, very shoot. difficult. I mean, they to, had, uh, they to did everything money. back then. The mechanic even had to know how to make a sandwich for you. Yeah, the mechanic back then was everything for you. He helped you do your laundry. He helped you do everything when you're on the road. You know, and, and that was the thing when you when you went back. You know, for us, we went go back east to race. We'd stay back there for a couple of weeks and, and, you know, just down the road. So we'd almost live with our mechanics in the box then and just, you know, live out of the hotels and stuff. And so, yeah, you had to, you know, be friends with your mechanic and, you know, know where the friendship ended and where the work part began. So, yeah, when, when they changed mechanics on me, yeah, that kind of, kind of, you know, rocked my world a little bit, you know, especially being a kid. No kidding. It's like, like it's a um, a hard like a hard enough time being a uh, a seventeen year old kid that uh, just has regular kid problems, let alone a, uh, a professional career that's uh, it's budding and uh, the bullets are flying every single weekend. Um, just curious, uh, how did you like your sandwiches back in the day? <laughs> well, we didn't have Subway back then or anything like that, so you know it was it was still you know. Turkey and Swiss, mayonnaise, mustard on on white bread. That's about the way I do it. There you go. Um, like you're <laughs> no, known as a guy who is almost unflappable on race day. Uh, very hard. To, you can't really get into your head in any way. But uh, it takes a, a strong mental toughness to be able to uh, to deal with something like that. Um, what, what focused you on race day? What allowed you to kind of have that uh, gunfighter mentality where uh, you weren't going to be shaken? Um. I think it was just the way I was raised, you know, just from my dad raising me just with the old school, you know, motocross way, the old school mentality, you know, men are men. And that was my job. And, you know, race day was, was work day for me. And, you know, that's just kind of the way I, I was brought up. And, you know, um, I don't know. I just, I always listened to music, would always kind of, put me into a calm spot in my own place, in my own world. And uh, I just knew when that gate dropped, it was race time. And, you know, I would do whatever it took to win. It didn't matter. Second didn't mean anything to me. So, I yeah, mean, that's, got, that's, just, that's just the way that I was raised. And even growing up, you know, I was, I was growing up, my dad, would take my chest protector away from me. He would take my mouth guard away from me and make me wear, you know, just goggles, you know, at a Saturday saddleback. So that way, when we rode with big bikes and stuff and I'd get roosted, it hurt. I'd have to learn to pass a lot quicker. Otherwise I'm going to get pelted. So I mean, yeah, that's, that's choose different I grew lines, up with. a bunch of things there. Yeah. That's the mentality I grew up with was, you know, if you don't like getting hit by rocks, you better find a way around that guy. So. I'm kidding. So, uh, um, 
with uh, basically the rug pulled out from under you as far as your uh, your mechanic and uh, on a 250 that's uh, not agreeing with the Supercross, um, um, uh, 87 comes around and uh, um, forgive me for not knowing, but uh, no Supercross for you. Was that uh, because of, a, of an injury recovery or uh, just uh, um, things came together late for you? Well, I ended up um, getting fired. I, I ended up getting fired in the beginning of the season basically because I refused to cut my hair. I had I had a blue mohawk and Suzuki didn't like it and they ended up firing me. Huh. So over a haircut. Yep. Because Which is kind of ironic. The, it wasn't the sportsman image back in the day. And um you know, that's what it was and I didn't play by the rules and and at that time that's when uh I started riding Kajiva over here, and Kajiva didn't have a 250 here yet, so I didn't ride Supercross, and then we went out and tackled the, the outdoors on the Kajiva. And how was that? You know, it, it wasn't bad, you know, for it being its first appearance over here, and it was a production bike, and nobody really knew over here, you know, how to work with it other than the mechanic that they had sent over from Italy for me. Um, you know, we had some really good motos. I mean, we broke top five quite a few times and not having, a, we didn't have a pipe on it or anything. It was stock pretty much all the way through with a little suspension work here and there, you know, a little jetting kind of things and nothing real big done to the bike, you know? And, uh, you know, yeah, top podium, five finish but, at, uh, top five finish in one of the motos at Southwick. No, uh, no joke for a kid who, uh, grew up on the other side of the pond. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and, you know, just, we had a couple good rounds and it just, you know, it was a decent season. We ended up, we won the 1.5 class at Golden State and, you know, we came back the next year and, they, you know, gave me a 250 to ride in Supercross and that was probably the most dangerous thing I've ever done. Yeah. You know, they they had a good motor, but they still had drum brakes. And, you know, I ended up landing in the seats at Seattle because the brakes just couldn't stop. <laughs> you, know? you know, got the whole shot in front of Johnson, those guys, and did the triple on the first lap and just could not stop in the ball turn and ended up right in bandstands. You know, drums, drum brakes just are not going to do it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's when I told them, yeah, I can't do this. And, uh, we, I gave them back their bikes and I actually bought production Suzuki's and paid off to, to Gainesville and Daytona and did that as a privateer. And after Daytona, I got a call to head over to Italy and that kind of sent me off to Europe. That's pretty cool. Well, how was, uh, how, how was heading off to Europe at, uh, the tender age of, uh, you were pretty young at the time. Um, you're a super young guy at the time. It's just still, uh, kind of making your way in the sport. And then, of course, we're not going over to, uh, um, Instagram, internet, uh, everyone's on the Euro, uh, Europe. This is Europe, Europe with, uh, East Germany and, uh, everything else. Yeah, this was way before the wall came down and all that. And um, getting off the plane in Italy and having Uzi's pointed right at you and, you know, just crazy, crazy way to live. But uh, basically went over there, you know, going over there for, for two weeks just to do two international races. And, 
I pulled off a, a good race in the, on the second week, you know, on a borrowed bike in, at Majura and, uh, you know, ended up earning me a ride and just kind of called home and just told my mom and dad, you know, sell the truck, sell the bike, sell this, sell that, sell the jet skis, and, you know, I'm staying. Put the money in the bank, I'm staying. So, you know, I made a living over there. That's incredible. So, uh, like right off the hop, uh, you you connected with uh, like some great brands, and you had great backing. Um, as far as uh, like, and you were able to uh, almost like like a duck in water as far as uh, the competition was concerned, and you were extremely competitive. Did did that kind of surprise you at all, or, or were you uh, were you kind of expecting to go over there and doing quite well right off the hop? Um, I don't know because the you know the, the second race I did over there. I podiumed all three motos on a 125 against all the 250 and 500s, you know, and yeah. it was a big international race. So all the world champions were there and stuff. And there was only one other 125 and it was Mika Koki from Finland, who was a factory Yamaha rider, you know, and he was riding his work bike. And I was just borrowing some neighbors, one of the kids in the little town that I was living in or stayed in right there in Italy, you know, let me borrow his 125 for the weekend. And, um, you know, podium all three motos, three thirty minute motos. And um so that kinda of showed me that I could run with the top guys there, you know, and uh but I just needed needed a chance. I needed a bike and I needed a chance and to do it. And uh you know, I ended up hooking up with Kajiva over there and kinda of got me on the team because I was with Kajiva here. And I mean basically like you know, I I, I fought and struggled and made it through the first year but i mean i, I ended up with, with the number five you know on the, on the plate at the end of the year so I, I was pretty happy with that absolutely and you should be like mixing it up with uh with the all-time greats and at this point uh for a lot of reasons um the the world championship was still coveted as um the, the uh like uh basically uh the, the same worth as a uh, as an american title uh contesting with guys who like we, we weren't pulling a ton of uh europeans over to contest for our title because in a lot of ways um like the the value of a, of a world championship was uh was was as great if not greater than an american championship yeah and it just depends on who you talk to i mean in my eyes growing up with the old school guys and, and the legends of motocross in my eyes was, you know, Roger Tosser and Gary Wolfink and, and the old guys. And um, they all came from Europe. You know, that, that's the yeah. legends. Motocross was founded in Europe. That's, you know, that's where it was born. I mean, we, we may have brought it to life, but that's where it was born. And, uh, you know, for me to go over there and do it and, and contend as a, as a world contender, that was a lot bigger for me than it was to be a, a national contender. You know, if if I could win a world championship, that was a whole lot bigger than winning a national championship. So, so as the, uh, the the events clicked off and you become more and more accustomed to uh, the European lifestyle, um, how how real did a uh, a national or a world championship come to you as you started to uh, um, like pick off like wins and and stuff like that? I didn't win a moto until my second year there. I didn't, I didn't yeah. win a moto my first season at all. And I mean, I was on the podium a couple of times and I was, 
you know, one of the fastest guys in time training and stuff like that. So I knew I had the speed and I just had to put it together. Um, but my first year there was, was pretty tough. I was, I was living, you know, basically, you know, race to race. I, I wasn't living on a salary or anything like that. I wasn't getting paid or any bonuses or anything. And I was paying to get to the races and I was paying for the hotels and for my mechanic and stuff like that. So whatever I made on the weekends is what paid to get me the next weekend to the race. So it was tough. I mean, I was sleeping in cars sometimes. I was, you know, going without showers for a week and it was just, it was just tough. So, you know, the next year when I signed, you know, got away from Kajiva and I ended up signing with KTM and moved to Holland from Italy and moved in with my mechanic and his family and actually had a solid roof over my head and had a team behind me and, you know, had a mechanic that was actually paid for and, you know, a, a home to go to every night after training and there was going to be a warm meal and a shower for me and, you know, I could go to a gym and I could go riding every day and stuff. Then, you know, my results started, you know, I started pulling off some wins and, and actually became a, a top contender, you know, because I got back into to racing again instead of just trying to live. That's wild. And the fact that you were, uh, you know, get onto a brand like KTM, which at the time not coveted the way it is today. If you wanted to jump on a KTM uh, factory now, you're like, you, you got the ride of a lifetime. But back then, um, not as coveted, maybe uh, some different uh, ideologies of how to build that bike that uh, can really get the job done. Well, but, uh, but you yeah, proved that it was worth that's, it. And... That's, that's only here in the States, though. Okay. In, Europe, in Europe back then, KTM had the fastest bike on the track. When, okay. when I when I got on the KTM team, there was not another bike to contend with us. There, me, Bobby, and Parker walked away. We were, you know, the fast guys that year, and, and everybody had to catch up to our bikes. So, you know, those, so your, your childhood rival uh, kind of uh, um, followed you he, a little bit. Uh, he took off before me. I followed him. Yeah. Bobby was Bobby was there a year before I came over. Okay. So he got over there and. He just, you know, I, I think he just saw the way competition was going in the States as a, you know, salary. And, and cause we, I, me and Bobby both think that we were kind of part of a generation that got overlooked. You know, and that's one of the reasons why we took off and went to Europe. And we got a lot more recognition for going over to Europe than we did being here because we had Johnson, Lachine, and O'Mara. Those guys were the generation in front of us. And then right behind us, we had the Bradshaws and the Castleviches, and, and those guys were the generation behind us that were getting a lot of play. So yeah. we were kind of getting overlooked and, you know. Caught in the middle. Yeah. So, you know, I had, I had you know, I kind of look at it that we just got out of here and stopped and kind of did our own thing. So, you know, kind of made it so that we weren't stuck in the middle no more. Incredible. So the the two of you guys are battling it out. You've got uh, these, like as you said, the superior machine on on the track. Um, what were some of the tracks that kind of played into your hands? That uh, like maybe even tracks that you hadn't seen before or hadn't seen until your rookie season over over in Europe. That kind of started to play into your hands by the time ninety one rolled around. Well, I mean, definitely when we go to Italy or or France and or Spain and Portugal, then we'd be on the hard pack tracks. You know, and, and those always played into my hands, you know, being at Saddleback, Carl's dad, and that kind of, you know, SoCal kid. 
you know, the harder the track, the, the better I liked it. And, uh, but what was crazy was I actually ended up winning more motos in the deep sand. You know, I, I moved to Holland and I don't think there's one hard pack track in Holland. It, it's all deep, deep sand. I mean, just the ugliest sand tracks you can imagine. Lol. And, oh yeah, just, I mean. Otherwise just, known as U.S. kryptonite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I would practice on it. I would go through five to 10 gallons of gas a day on these tracks. And I did that for a year. And, you know, my, my first Grand Prix that I won was actually in Holland. And, uh, you know, and it was on Dave Stribos' personal track. And so I, I beat the guys at their own track and, and all that, and which kind of pissed off a lot of people. But, <laughs> you know, and, and... Too bad. No, exactly. Too bad. You know, tough. that's the way racing goes. And uh, I actually became a really good sand rider. You know, because when I ended up leaving Holland, I, I moved to Belgium, and Belgium only has one hard pack track. And uh, so my own practice track, I had my own private practice track, and uh, that was the roughest sand track I've ever seen. You know, even even when the U.S. team came over to, to practice just before the nations that year in 91, I let them come out of my track, and they... I think they could only do like 15 minutes around it, you know, and they had to stop because they were just too burnt out and too tired to the track still rough. So how, how is like, uh, how is Mike Healy not representing, uh, the, the USA, um, uh, in a, in a year where, uh, arguably, uh, you would have had a leg up, especially at a place like that. Well, it should have been, the team was supposed to be me more impartive. That's the way it was supposed to go down. We were the ones that were voted by the fans to do the donations in 91. Yeah. And um, somehow, I don't know who it was or whatever through AMA, pulled it and said, no, uh-uh. Because um, Parker rode under an Italian license, Moore rode under an Austrian license, and I rode under a French license. And since we rode under different country licenses, it didn't matter what our passports were. You know, we were, they considered us as not being Americans. So they pulled us from being on the team and they put together their team and stuff. And that was the year that, that the Americans got smoked in the sand. Yeah. And uh, one could argue that uh, the three of you guys would have definitely been able to at least do something uh, on tracks that you're you're used to and uh, competition that you're used to uh, competing against. And uh, it's too bad you didn't get the opportunity to to do that because that would have been your only opportunity to uh, to represent uh, your 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 country. Yeah, I mean, it kind of sucks because I did win the Grand Prix in Holland and I did win the Grand Prix in Belgium that year. So I mean, the sand was not an option, you know, not a problem for me. I was more than prepared. I was in the best shape of my life, and you know, that would have it would have been you know an honor to to represent America, you know. And I was looking forward to it, and I was you know hoping for it, and it just kind of got pulled away from us. So, you know, that's just one of those other things in life that suck. <laughs> kidding. But, uh, so, uh, but Europe continued to be successful for you. You were able to, uh, contest for victories and, uh, come extremely close to, uh, to even, uh, capturing a title. Uh, what were some of your fondest memories of, uh, of, 
um, of racing over there, and and how close did you come? Like, like uh, as far as like the the memories of uh, of, of title contendership over in Europe. Well, I, I what I missed it by three points. Yeah, I think in '91 by three points, and literally Awfully close. Yeah, and that's, that's one moto victory different. That, yeah, it's the difference between first and second in a, in a moto, and um, I mean literally, if, if if Stanton wouldn't have you know tried taking me out in the you know the last moto of the last race of the year, you know, and I would have held that you know that. Because I was invited all the way up until the two lap board, and then he T-boned me. So if he, you know, if that wouldn't have happened, you know, two more laps, I'm sure I, I just did 45 minutes. I'm sure two more wouldn't have been a problem. You know, so that would have been, you know, the title right there. I just, you know, can't get much closer than that. No kidding. And uh, so um, that that moment for you, uh, like I said earlier, you're a guy who's got a lot of mental strength. Was um, that a, uh, a a hard moment for you, where you were you able to get you were upset, or does that does that make you more determined for the next year, or both? Um, I mean, a little of both. I was I was a little pissed off, but you know, I basically you know went back to Europe and from Japan and was promised the world from Suzuki and basically was given, you know, the Czech Republic, <laughs> you know, the boys promised me everything under the sun to, to make me happy to, to ride Suzuki for him, you know, in Belgium. And, you know, I signed my contract and went home for the winter and came back and everything that he promised me was a lie. Everything was, wasn't there. And, you know, it was just a hoax. And, you know, I spent almost 90% of my season that year trying to get out of my contract. It was just wow. miserable. It just sucked. It was the worst year. It was it was so bad that literally the mechanic they, they gave me was Stefan's father. You know, my teammate's father was my mechanic. So, I mean, how, how fair is that? No kidding. You know, and the team manager of the team is, you know, Stefan's uncle. And his father was my mechanic. You know, they, they pretty much just straight paid me off to to not be able to beat them. So, you know, and they made it real clear that that's the way it was, too. They, you know, they straight up told me that's what was going to happen. And so, when yeah. I I tried getting out of my contract, and they said, nope, your signature's on here. You're stuck with us for a season. So, you know, I, I followed by the rules, and the season was over and done, and that's when I came home and put together a 125 and, and went to Steel City, and then wanted to show everybody Steel City that I could still ride. And uh, you did exactly that with the podium performance. Uh, and uh, did you end up winning one of the? Like I can double check on here on the on the yeah on I the won vault, the second photo. I second moto I yeah. won. I went wire to wire with it. Or over the uh, that year's champion Jeff Emig. So uh, yeah. on a. Uh, on a Suzuki that's uh, put together by yourself, go ahead and uh, and beat the uh, the mono carbed, uh, the mono jetted carb of uh, of Jeff Emig, who was basically on the top of the world right there. Yeah, yeah, it was Emig and Morocco and Larry Ward. They were going at it that year. Doug Henry. And, yep, and uh, I just Hughes. showed up out of the blue with with my open face helmet and everything, and actually drove there with a buddy of mine in his Aerostar van. And, you know, just drove there for kind of a road trip and showed up. And I think I went 3-1 or 4-1 or something like that for second overall. But I 
got the you know the, the win in the second moto, and so it was cool. It was a good day. No kidding, got a, that that had to feel good. Oh yeah, especially when I got to go back to the hotel and and call the boys and say, hey buddy, you know, you owe me some money. No I'm joke. Showing up there, you know, I, in America, I was considered a privateer. So on my contract, you know, when international was a privateer, you know, I, I got like $75,000 or something like that, you know, winning that race. So, you know, that was a, a really nice phone call to make that night. No kidding. And uh, um, I was going to say, why stay on Suzuki's? But I guess that's the reason why you stay on Suzuki's, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, you, you continued to race a couple uh, a couple more uh, rounds that year, but uh, the, the next one you hit was was Bud's Creek, but uh, only one week after uh, a Steel City, nineteenth place overall. But uh, I, I got to well, imagine you even, probably had. A, I don't even think the bike ran. I basically yeah. when the moto was done, we started the bike up like to take it to uh, like inspection after the race, and the, the piston was stuck to the side of the cylinder. And and then we went and me and my buddy that I was traveling with went and stayed at uh, Jeff Turnick's place and Jeff helped us with some parts and stuff and Pro Circuit sent us some parts to try to rebuild the bike. But literally like it never ran. You know, it, it just ran like junk. You know, it, it was all scarred up and everything, the cylinder and all that and it just it never ran and, and we got back there to uh you know, to the next round, and it was just pouring down rain and just miserable. And yeah, I, I don't even think we rode the second moto because I don't think the bike was running. So it was kind of a, a waste of a trip, other than a road trip. So no yeah, doubt. But uh, I, I, I'm uh, just haven't haven't known you uh, too long, but I'm getting the sense that uh, Mike Healy probably enjoyed himself a, a good road trip back in the day. Oh yeah, that's. I mean, that's what it was for. It was a road trip to relax, you know? I mean, literally, to get, it took us three days, four days, just to get back to Steel City. <laughs> so, I mean, we drive a few hours and we go through a town and we saw something that looked cool, we stopped. You know, we had fun. No kidding. Yeah. What were some of your uh, your best memories or best stories from uh, fun times out on the road as a professional racer? Oh, uh, those stories I can't even tell. I know, put me back in jail. I'll get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, I'll, I'll have an ex-wife hunt me down. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I definitely had a lot of fun. You know. And people that I, I ran across on the road at these races and stuff, people that I met, you know, they'll go vouch. We, we definitely had a lot of fun on the road. You ever pick up any hitchhikers? No, no. No. I don't God, think so. We, I we draw remember. the line at, at hitchhikers, Brad. Come on. I, I, might, I might have been the person hitchhiking, but I, you know. <laughs> Fair enough. So the following year, 1993, uh, you're back in you're back in the states, and uh, first race uh, that you were that uh, the the Suzuki stayed together for you was uh, was San Diego. Um, but uh, I, I'm surprised to see you would have stayed on Suzuki, uh, given the fact that uh, you only had a one year contract over in Europe. And uh, uh, was it just a familiar bike to you? I was riding for for tough racing. They're the ones that picked me up to race over here in the states. Dave Analek. And uh, Tough Racing picked me up, 
and uh, it was, we're going to ride a 250 in Supercross, but they weren't real serious about it. And, you know, they kind of gave me an old beat-up Suzuki 250 to ride, and they were trying to put together a 125 for the outdoor nationals. You know, me being a European rider, they were more interested in the nationals. But they could not keep a bike running. Literally, you know, whoever they had working on the motors that year, the bikes would just see sitting on the stand. I mean, literally, we didn't, we couldn't even get the bike to make it to the gate. It was that bad. You know, it might have been wow. the prettiest, prettiest bike you could ever see, you know, sitting on the stand, but, you know, it just never made it to the track. It never, never finished the moto, never finished qualifier, nothing. And, um, so basically, when it came time, because that was the year that they had done the 250-500 where they changed it, you know, and split yep. the split the season, you know, six races per per uh, size bike. And when it got to that point, I ended up quitting my my deal with Tough and did a deal with uh, Brothers Honda out of Washington. But you rode you rode one. Uh... One Suzuki, one Suzuki 500 race at Washougal, and he got top five. Well, I rode, uh, well, it, when I went to Washougal, I, I rode for brothers. I rode a Honda. Oh, okay. In, in no, the still, in they the still had you down as a Suzuki. So when, that thing when, must have been a rocket ship then. My my 500? Yeah. It was, uh, it was just a Pro Circuit 500 motor that uh, actually at the time... It was um, Villapoto's, his, Villapoto's father was a mechanic there at, at Brothers Honda at the time. Oh, wow. And he had turned some wrenches on it for me and helped me out a little bit. And then, um, you know, basically I was just kind of having a friend go with me to the races here and there and we just kind of fly in and I paid Lance Snell to drive the bike from race to race. And, uh, you know, I... I was top three or four almost at every 500 national that year. He ended yeah. up fourth, fourth overall or something like that at the end of the season. And, and mixing it up with, uh, with the mics, Kodrowski, uh, and, uh, and, and LaRocco as well as, uh, or who, who else was on the, on the, um, that was fast on, uh, 500s that year. Lampson. Oh, Lampson. Yeah. Lampson was good there. So, and, you know, I I had a few things that other people didn't have. I had, you know, the conventional forks I brought over from Europe, you know, the Morizaki forks and stuff. So I had some cool things. <laughs> Damn right you did. And, uh, yeah, I, I, it, amazing a guy who can uh, be successful on a 125 in Supercross and and also uh, manhandle a 500 outdoors, which, um, like, riding a 500 on these national tracks uh, requires a lot of things, including uh, throttle control, a lot, a ton of patience, balance, and uh, basically uh, um, you you, you got to lightly wrestle this thing ar- around the track. It's, it's, it's tough to even describe. Yeah, it, it's, 500s are a handful, that's for sure. Um, I don't know. I always looked at it like if you crash the one twenty when you crash on a one twenty five, the thing is it's kind of like a bicycle. It just teams and bounces all over the place. Yeah. And you crash on a two fifty, it's a little bit heavier and kind of bounces. It might hit you once or twice. You crash on a five hundred, that thing will hit you five or six times in it. Make sure it, it, you're under it when it stops bouncing. Yeah. You know, it's, that thing's like, <laughs> it's like a bull. That thing just lands on top of you no matter what. You know, well, that's what they just, say about four strokes now is that, like, for whatever reason, the bike always seems to find you. <laughs> yeah. 
well, they're big bikes. They're four fifties. They're not, you know, little toys anymore. So, yeah. I mean, I I would much rather ride a two fifty on Supercross than a four fifty. You know, I mean, that's just my personal opinion. I I think they should be back to two strokes. I think so as well. Honestly, um, they're uh, more exciting racing. More uh, more mistakes are made, uh, so it kind of keeps guys tighter together. There's more opportunities for passing because now you have guys that they all hit the outside line, then they go 3-3. Three, three. They hit yep. the outside line again. They go step on, step off, around the corner, over the double, done. Yep, exactly. It's just a big freight train all the way around the track. You know, and there's only, on the lights class, there's only one guy that's doing any passing and, and going through any traffic, you know, but... You know, it's just, I don't know. I, I think if they brought back two slopes, it'd bring a, a lot better racing, you know, to the sport. I, I to- totally agree. And as a two-stroke guy, I, uh, I it, it puts a smile on my face to hear you say that. Um, so, uh, for, for 1994 rolls around and a pretty abbreviated season altogether, uh, which saw you ride uh, both 250s and 450s. Um, but uh, what, what was 94 like for you? Well, I don't know. 94, gosh, what was I doing? I think I was just kind of bouncing Honest. around. I was, was that with, with the 500 that year? Uh, no, that's, uh, you, you raced Daytona, uh, which uh, was not exactly uh, a, an, a, an awesome uh, night, day for you. 29th out of 30. Uh, okay. So guaranteed a, a I'm trying to think what there. I, I'm trying to think what I rode, though. Was I, did I go, was it on the 250 or was it on the, on the 440? I would have been uh, I would have been Hondas, uh, two hundred and fifty. Sorry, I'm trying to think. Um, I don't think what had happened. Hangtown and Bud's Creek were your only nationals that year, and then yeah. uh, fast forward to '95. Yeah, I don't. I was bouncing around. I think I was doing a lot of the the Wild West races and stuff, and a lot of uh, Golden State, Trans Cal, a lot of local stuff. Okay, instead fair of, enough. Instead of instead of kind of going out of my pocket and paying a lot you know, travel on my own kind of thing. You know, I, I was married, had a kid. You know, I was kind of going, doing a lot more of the local series, you know, things. And and that's when the school started getting really big. Yeah, I was going to, I was about to ask, uh, at some point uh, through all this learning of how to become this extremely successful, extremely uh, fast motocross racer, uh, you, you come across, uh, you come, come to the knowing that you know a lot about how to make a bike go and you want to pass on that knowledge to people. Uh, when did, uh, that kind of, uh, become true for you and, uh, how were you able to, uh, to harness that to, uh, to help out some kids to, uh, really turn some fast lap times? Well, I mean, I basically did my first school when I was over in Europe. Some kids from Switzerland asked me if I would have been interested in, in putting together a school and, and teaching them. And that was the first time that I, I had taught was over in Europe. And uh, when I came home, I think my, my first student here was uh, Kevin Townsend. And uh, Kevin and his brother are the ones that are the, the founders and CEO of uh, Fast, Fast Company uh, Handlebars. Okay, yeah, yeah. The, the handlebars with the little shock absorbers on them for the off-road riders. I know a friend of mine that still rides with them today for moto. And um, Kevin, the, the younger of the two brothers, I kind of took him under my wing and took him out there. And by the end of the year, he was pro. I took him from being a beginner up to pro in a year and, and being a contender. And 
everybody saw it. Like, I didn't advertise, I didn't do anything. They just saw what I was doing with this kid. And then, you know, it just word of mouth. It just went off, went crazy that, you know, that I, I knew how to teach, that I could talk to these kids and, and get through to them. And not only could I do that, but I could also still get on the bike and walk their butt around check anytime I wanted. So, you know, I was doing that. And then I, you know, was also the cover boy for Dirt Rider Magazine for a couple of years. And was doing yeah. all the magazine stuff for a few years. So, you know, I just, I was keeping myself busy. For sure. Like, uh, you, you're a, a, a great tester, a guy who knows how to develop a bike. I got to imagine that uh, that you and Rich Taylor could probably sit down and just, like, talk out the, every problem with every production bike over the last, I don't know, 20 years or so. <laughs> yeah, we probably could, yeah. Me, me and Rich have done definitely a, a lot of, lot of uh, R&D work and, and magazine tests and, and stuff like that. That's for sure. That's really cool. It's it, like what what were some of the uh the things that you tested that didn't end up on the cutting that ended up on the cutting room floor or uh some of the stuff like or an idea that uh, totally didn't work. Oh man, I've I've tested all kinds of things. Um I've tested I don't know, there was a guy that invented you know how they have where the forks compressed for for the start now? Yes. The, the guy that invented that the first one first thing that we tested back in the day, it was actually a wind-up coil that kind of went down your fork line, and you had to literally hook it under the bottom of your wheel and, and roll the bike back to get the forks to compress. And then they also had a, a thing for the rear shock, too, that, that was, you had to compress the rear shock and get that squat down, and um, so the whole bike squatted down, you know, like four inches from stock, you know, on the gate. It tracked it. I mean, it worked off, you know, the idea of it worked really good. But it was scary just to have that stuff. Sorry. You know, it was scary to have that stuff, you know, kind of dangling around the front wheel. So, um, no kidding. Yeah, I'm, I, um, I hate to do this to you, but I'm going to have to cut it short. My mom just came in and. <laughs> No, no big deal. Uh, like uh, we can, we can wrap it up. Uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about was uh, was four stroke nationals. But if you got to go, uh, I can always call you back. Yeah, yeah. If you don't mind, we can definitely you know continue this another day. You know, a little bit earlier hour. Yeah, no problem. Uh, I can uh, um, I can give you a shout back uh, pretty much any any day that uh, that works for you, man. Um, I'll uh, uh, we'll, we'll wrap this up with a pretty bow. I'll uh, I'll throw my commercials in. I'll release this for tomorrow morning, and uh, and sometime uh, as early as like uh, uh, tomorrow, Saturday or Sunday, if you've got uh, if you've got twenty minutes for me to uh, to wrap up uh, the the rest of your career and and all the things that you've got going on now, I, I'd, I'd be glad to uh, call you up again. Yeah, sure. No problem. I mean, you can call me anytime you want. This is, you know, my, my personal number. You're, you're more than welcome to call anytime you want. Excellent, Mike. Well, uh, uh, you have yourself a great rest of your evening, and uh, I will I will send you a link to this as soon as it's done. Uh, thank you so much for being on the more, uh, Big MX Radio Podcast Show. Uh, you have yourself a great night. All right. Thank you. I'll talk to you later. Thank you for listening to the Big MX Podcast, brought to you by X-Brand Goggles. Be sure to check out our archive for episodes you may have missed. Check out our website at BigMXRadio.com for more content.